Welcome back to Case of the Sunday Scaries. I'm Elise. It was a very special treat to have Annie back for an episode last week, but today it's just little old me, and let me tell you, the case that I have for you today really has it all. Conspiracy theories, the fountain of youth, a 2,000-year-old alien, a stolen baby, the cure for cancer, many, many unsuspecting women with drained bank accounts, and tragically, the death of a completely innocent woman. This is the case of the murder of Girlie Chu by her master manipulator husband, Diazen Hassenkoft. We always list our sources in the show notes, but I think it's important to mention that I have heavily relied on the book September Sacrifice by Mike Horner, and if you would like to hear even more of the crazy details of this case, check out the link to his book in our show notes. Diazen Hassenkoft was born March 5, 1965 in Houston, Texas, but his given name at birth was Armand Chavez. There's a lot of people involved in today's case, so to make it easier and to keep them all straight, I'm just going to call him Diazen. We don't know too much about Diazen's childhood, but two major uh-oh factors definitely stood out to me. When Diazen's parents split up at the age of six, he went to live with his father, but Diazen would never see his mother again. I point this out because I'm always looking for clues to the why behind what makes these people the way they are. And you can imagine that feeling abandoned by your mother at such a young age would certainly leave you with some abandonment issues, perhaps alter your perception of women in general. As a teen, Diazen was involved in high school football. And unfortunately, during a football game, he suffered a head injury so severe it would require him to be airlifted to the hospital and he would stay there for multiple days. Friends and family reported that after this head injury, he was never the same again. It seemed like his personality had truly changed overnight. Sound a little far-fetched? It's not. According to Headway, the Brain Injury Association, the most common behavioral changes after a brain injury are lack of impulse control, obsessive behaviors or habits, aggression and irritability, and egocentricity a fancy word for being self-centered. In fact, if you were to go through a list of some of the most notorious serial killers you can think of, Dennis Rader, the BTK killer, Albert Fish, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, David Berkowitz, the Son of Sam, and John Wayne Gacy, beyond the believed McDonald triad precursors for becoming a serial killer, uranesis, harming small animals, and arson, they all had suffered childhood traumatic brain injury, either by an accident or as a result of abuse. Am I saying every person who suffers a brain injury in childhood is going to go on to be a serial killer? Certainly not. But according to a study published with the National Institute of Health, only about 2-3% to of the population will ever commit a violent crime. But in a study of over 22,000 traumatic brain injury cases, 8.8% had committed violent crimes, which is a pretty substantial increase. I want to make it clear, just because someone has a brain injury, it doesn't make them a killer or even necessarily prone to violence. However, if I were to speculate on why so many of us are fascinated with true crime, it's because we want to understand what we just cannot. Most of us don't have a murderous thought in our body, so we are searching to understand the how and the why of it all. And in order to do so, we have to discuss these potential factors like childhood abuse, mental health, and yes, childhood brain injury. Let's get back to Diazen, though. 
After his brain injury at the age of 16, Diazen left his home and would never speak to his family again. During college, Diazen met a woman named Rosemary. They had quite the hot and heavy romance and soon were married and had a child together. However, their marital life would quickly deteriorate. Rosemary noticed that Diazen had a propensity to exaggerate and outright lie about everything. The kind of person who lies about things that make no sense to lie about. Listeners, when I say this, you probably have someone in mind, right? The person who you could ask, hey, what color is the sky? And they would look you dead in the eye and say, purple. Without hesitation, without even batting an eye, that was Diazen. As if constant lying wasn't problem enough, Rosemary claims that on numerous occasions, she would find Diazen drawing his own blood. Remember the symptoms of traumatic brain injury, that obsessive compulsion that can result from it? Diazen was obsessed with not only his own blood, but as this case continues, we will also find out that Diazen was obsessed with drawing blood from other people as well. After three years of marriage, Rosemary got the heck out of there, and her and her child would never hear or see from Diazen again. Normally, I would reprimand any parent who chose to abandon their child emotionally or financially, but in this case, this was truly the kindest thing Diazen could have done so that Rosemary and his child could be removed from his diabolical schemes and violence. Diazen, now in his mid-twenties, sets his sights on becoming a doctor, not because he wanted to genuinely help people, no. Diazen's number one concern is always Diazen. And so he wanted the prestige and financial wealth that being a doctor could provide him. However, his grades were not good enough to get him into medical school. But why let that stop him, right? Nothing a little forgery can't fix. Those forged transcripts actually got him into a medical program. Now, don't get any idea, younger listeners, with technology and the internet as it is today, I don't think this would be possible. But back before the internet was a thing, apparently a little whiteout and clever typewriting skills could get you into medical school. But what did medical school also offer to the blood-obsessed Dyson? An excuse to ask his peers to practice drawing their blood. If someone came up to me on the street and said, hey, mind if I take a little bit of your blood? It's just a quick poke. I would bop them over the head as hard as I could with my purse and run away. But in medical school, maybe this didn't seem as bizarre because it's reported multiple students let him practice drawing their blood. In medical school, Diazen concocted a lie that would gain him sympathy from his peers, one that he would tell for years and years to come, and one that almost became a self-fulfilling prophecy later in his life. Diazen would tell anyone that would listen that his wife Rosemary and his infant daughter died in a car crash on their way to pick him up from his college classes. Of course, this gained him a ton of sympathy. But I also think it made his peers and maybe even his instructors a little bit more lenient on some of his behaviors, because to say that he was quick-tempered would be an understatement. But then you tell this sob story and everyone's like, oh, well, he's grieving, he's going through a hard time. Let's just, you know, let's just give him a pass, right? During his time in school, obviously students are working under the supervision of medical professionals and doing clinical work. And it was during his work at a local hospital that he met a patient named Paula. Paula Young was a very wealthy hotel heiress who unfortunately really struggled with her mental health. When she left the hospital in 1988, she had taken such a liking to Diazen that she offered him a job in her home. 
For all of Dyson's faults, it seems throughout this case that he had quite a way of charming women. I've seen pictures of him when he was younger, and personally, I don't get it. He's not some Adonis. So he must have been quite the charmer with his work. Dyson would help Paula with some of the mundane day-to-day activities like cooking meals, cleaning up, helping to balance her checkbook, things that Paula was struggling to accomplish herself. It was during one of these meals that Paula noticed that her veggies tasted a little off. However, Paula reported that Dyson kept insisting she finish her veggies, checking in on her often. Remember, finish your vegetables. And because she wanted to please him, she ate every bit of it. But not long after she finished, Paula began violently throwing up and having diarrhea and was rushed to the hospital. Her organs were shutting down, and it was found that she had been poisoned with a large dose of arsenic. Paula was clearly heartbroken that her trusted companion, who kept insisting, eat your veggies, was most likely the person who had tried to kill her. Unfortunately, despite her suspicions, and let's be honest, it's pretty obvious to us who did this, there was just not enough evidence to charge Dyson. So he got away with almost murdering this vulnerable woman, a woman who had depended on him, grown to trust him. He tried to kill her. And for what? Dyson was also caught stealing needles and medical supplies from school, but apparently even that was not enough to get him kicked out. It was not until the administration discovered his forged transcripts that Dyson was finally expelled. His dream of medical school was done. So what now? Dyson needed a new start, and what better way to start a new life than move to a new place? He chose Albuquerque, New Mexico. But that wasn't enough. He also needed a new name. So the man-child, formerly known as Armand Chavez, legally changed his name to Dyson Hassenkoft a very unique choice. In fact, he was the only person with that specific name. But why did he choose it? He believed the name Dyson sounded Japanese, and the last name Hassenkoft sounded German. And he believed that these were the two master races. His words, not mine, don't come from me. With a new location and a new name, now it was time to set his sights on a new target. Listeners, if you don't recognize this sound... then you are probably too young to be familiar with the way lonely singles met up before the time of Tinder and Hinge. Instead of writing a short bio about yourself, choosing your best selfies in order to pause someone's swiping finger long enough to get them to match with you, people posted personal ads in the newspaper. One such personal ad really caught Dyson's attention. The ad was placed by a 72-year-old heiress whose name was Sunny Blake. Unfortunately, in 1993, Sunny had found out that she had advanced stage breast cancer, and for however long she had left, she wanted some companionship, and I can't blame her for that. However, I wish someone in her life had proofread her personal ad before she posted it, because she placed an ad in the paper that said, Wealthy woman looking for lover. But what this ad could be translated to for a user and abuser like Dyson, he probably read, Vulnerable target ready to be manipulated. And that is exactly what he did. Dyson and Sunny formed a relationship of sorts. Keep in mind, he's like 40 plus years her junior. So Sunny is probably feeling pretty giddy about all this attention from him. Once the trust was built between them, Dyson tells Sunny that he is a geneticist 
and he has discovered a serum that could cure her breast cancer. But not only that, he had discovered an anti-aging serum while working with the NSA. If you are rolling your eyes right now, keep in mind DNA was just becoming a more mainstream thing. It may have been a buzzword because of the O.J. Simpson case and things that were going on in the news around this time, but it wasn't really fully understood. But even more so, Sunny was a woman who was facing her death. She wanted to live and she was desperate. So along comes this man claiming he can cure her and she took the bait. Dyson became her personal doctor and began her treatments, I guess you could call them, right away. But what did these treatments consist of? Sunny thought she was being injected with these miracle cancer-curing serums and anti-aging serums, but Dyson was actually injecting her with vitamin B shots and his own blood. Yeah, you heard me right. He was injecting this woman with his own blood. And the cost for this? $25,000 a month. He convinced Sunny that he had the anti-aging properties in his blood So the only way to transfer those properties to her was by drawing his own blood and injecting it straight away into her. I had to do a little digging on what the risks of this blood sharing could be. There's obvious concerns about contracting bloodborne diseases like Hep B and C and HIV. But if you are given blood that has a type not compatible with yours, your body will produce antibodies to destroy the donor's red blood cells. While small amounts of this may not kill you, The immune system response can cause you to go into shock and can lead to death. I doubt Diazin was checking to make sure that Sunny had the AB plus blood type that is considered the universal recipient blood type, which by the way, less than 4% of the US population has this blood type. So more than likely, he was not providing her a cure. He was chancing her fate every time he stuck her with that needle. You would think that $25,000 a month is a pretty good income for Diazin, especially since he never graduated from that medical school program that he forged his way into. But no, he needs more, so he expands on his earlier lie from college about his wife and daughter dying in a car accident. The wife and daughter that are very much alive, he's just abandoned them, but let's carry on. He tells Sonny that he has saved one single strand of his daughter's hair, and he plans to use the DNA from that hair to clone her, basically bringing his beloved daughter back to life. I'm going to give Sonny the benefit of the doubt here. Maybe her mind wasn't in a right state after all these home blood injections, because not only did she believe this lie, Sonny wanted to provide a place for Dyson and his daughter to live after he brought her back to life. So she bought him a home for them to live in. A whole ass house for him and his clone daughter. Tragically, since these treatments were only doing harm and obviously no good whatsoever, Sunny's breast cancer continued to advance and by the time her son forced her to go to a real doctor, her breast had swollen more than twice its normal size and there was nothing that could be done. Sunny passed away in 1996 And over the course of her three-year relationship with Dyson, he not only got a house, but had milked her for over half a million dollars in bogus treatments. While Sonny was running this entire con, he had someone at home, someone who knew nothing about his con man ways, his second wife, Girlie Chu.
Girlie Chu was born August 27, 1963 in Malaysia. She was incredibly close with her family, and from what everyone says about Girlie, she was just the best. She was so sweet, so hardworking, and it was during her work as a bank teller that she made a work bestie named Susan. The two would travel together quite often, and on a 1992 trip to San Diego, California, Susan and Gurley visited SeaWorld. We're not going to judge her for going to SeaWorld. This was a long time ago. And this is where she had the horrible fate of running into Dyson Hassenkoft. Honestly, this man would have been better off used as fish food. But alas, the two hit it off because Dyson was a charmer. She returned home and the two began exchanging love letters. And it was not too long after that that Dyson proposed marriage to her, convincing her to come to America, leave the family she loves so much, and marry him. Unfortunately, Gurley said yes. When she arrived in the U.S. in early 1993, Dyson met her and presented her at the airport with an engagement ring worth over $7,500. He had told Gurley that he was a renowned thoracic surgeon. He really sold her on this privileged life they were going to have together in the U.S., and Gurley had no reason not to believe him. So eight days after she arrived, they got married. If you aren't following the timeline closely, you might be wondering, how the heck did this expelled college student afford a $7,500 engagement ring? Gurley arrived in early 1993, the same time that Dyson had begun conning Sonny Blake. He was not the one footing the bill for the home he lived in or the ring he put on her finger. Of course not. That was coming from the fake cancer and anti-aging serums that he was giving to Sonny actual audacity of this man. Gurley really seemed to be the light in not only her family's life, but in everyone she came in contact with. She was trusting, sweet, kind to everyone, and she believed she was embarking on her happily ever after with a Cornell graduate who also had a degree from the University of Tokyo. Of course, none of this was actually true, and what Gurley was really embarking on was going to turn out much more like a horror film than a fairy tale. It was not too long into their marriage that they discovered that Gurley was infertile. Gurley decided to get herself a fur baby, a loving pet she could dote on and maybe take some of the sting out of the news that she was not able to carry her own children. They adopted a dog, but soon after, that dog passed away from being poisoned. Now, many people would assume maybe they accidentally gave this puppy grapes or chocolate, and it's just a heartbreaking accident because maybe they just didn't know better. But when you think back to the arsenic poisoning of Paula, I can't help but wonder if this dog's death was not an accident at all. Maybe it was the result of this dog unfortunately being in the care of a heartless man like Dyson. Again, this is just me speculating. It's not like they did an autopsy of the dog, but it seems like a pretty good theory when you find out that the next dog also went missing within a week of its adoption. My dog Gracie seems to know when people are suspicious. I remember a man approached me that just reeked of the booze sweats. Oh, I hate that smell. And she immediately got in front of me and bared her teeth at him. She is such a sweetheart and I had never seen her do that before. But she seemed to be able to sense that something was not right and this man in front of me was not to be trusted. So perhaps this dog, after a week of being in Dyson's presence, was like, yeah, sorry, girly, uh, I gotta go. And who could blame it? Being an animal lover, that is what I hope. But it seems more likely 
that Diazen did not want Gurley to have a distraction because what he really wanted was a child. This dad of the year award winner over here who can't be bothered to help his own child financially and in fact tells everyone she died in a car accident wants a child. What Diazen wants, Diazen gets, and he concocted a plan. Diazen wasn't going to be held down by the vows of marriage, so he's telling Gurley he's traveling the world to perform all these life-saving surgeries, but what he is really doing is anything but. In 1995, Diazen traveled to Canada. Of course, he's not there to perform surgery that he isn't remotely qualified for. Oh no, he's there to booze and schmooze. He ends up meeting a 28-year-old woman named Naoko, and when he finds out that she is Japanese, what he believed to be one of the master races, he puts his plan of getting a baby into action. He starts wooing Naoko, and when she finds out that she has gotten pregnant, Daisen tells her that he will take care of her and the child. Nothing to be worried about. He is, after all, this incredible doctor who seemingly spends his life caring for others. Poor Naoko had no idea about Daisen's wife, Gurley. She also had no idea that this man was basically using her as a breeder, because when it was time for her to give birth, Daisen traveled up to Canada to be with her. She welcomed a healthy baby boy into the world, but then Daisen told her some devastating news. Daisen said he had a rare genetic disorder that everyone in his family had, and that he had tragically passed on to their sweet baby boy. Their baby would need lifelong medical care, and he was the only person that could properly care for him. He manipulated Naoko into thinking that her child was going to die if he didn't take him back immediately to the U.S. for treatments. And Naoko, wanting to save her child, agreed. Daisen took the baby and returned home, and Naoko would never hear from Daisen or see her young baby boy again. Tyson basically stole a baby from a mother under false pretenses and never looked back. How can someone have such little regard for other people's feelings? It's beyond me. But let's imagine you're girly chew. You're just whipping something together for dinner and in walks your husband holding a brand new baby boy and says, I adopted this Mexican orphan for us. Here's your new son. I would definitely have some follow-up questions. However, we don't know what the state of his marriage with Gurley was. Maybe at this point, she was already scared into silence. Or maybe she assumed because he was a doctor, perhaps he could pull some strings and adopt a baby out of the blue without having to go through all the normal steps you have to do for adoption. Either way, Gurley accepted this child as her own and they named him Dimitri, with Gurley never knowing that this was Diazen's biological child. I have a little suspicion that Diazen was so dead set on having a biological child because it would have helped him in the con with Sunny. If you remember, he told her that he was going to genetically recreate his daughter in a lab with just one of her hairs that he saved from a car crash. But if he could produce a child that looked like him, maybe even regardless of gender, he could further convince Sunny that he was this expert geneticist and further his con. Either that, or he was so egotistical and thought so highly of himself, he thought the world needed another little mini-him. Because let's just be honest, Dyson doesn't do anything for the reason normal humans would. To have a child, to love unconditionally, and guide through this world, oh no, no, no. Because Dyson was not capable of 
any kind of true emotion for another person, only in how he could manipulate others to better serve him, his pocketbook, and his, uh, well, let's just say his desires, if you catch my drift. Dyson further proves my point when after Sonny had passed away from cancer and he's been home helping to raise Dimitri for just a few months, he gets bored and sets his sights on preying on his next victim. He leaves Gurley and Dimitri at home and begins a relationship with a hairstylist named Kimberly. He tells her the ridiculous backstory that he had told Sonny. He had the cure for cancer and anti-aging. But he added a little bit to his story now. You know, shake it up a bit, keep it interesting. Dyson preys on her sympathy by telling Kimberly that he is dying of leukemia. Which is funny. Because, sir, didn't you just say you had the cure for cancer? So why wouldn't you be able to cure yourself? Regardless, him and Kimberly continue dating. And it is not long after that Dyson is proving to be his creepy self. Without going into detail, Kimberly had a preteen daughter, and while there was no sexual assault that we know of, there was an instance where he used his made-up doctor credentials to perform an unclothed sports physical on Kimberly's daughter, which is just sick. Not just that, though, because Kimberly came home to find him drawing the blood of her two young sons without her consent. Good old blood obsession is back, and he tells Kimberly, don't worry about it, nothing's wrong here, I was just testing them to see if they had the same blood type. Remember, I'm dying of leukemia. I need to find someone that's a match and could maybe donate their blood marrow to me. And Kimberly continues dating him. Kimberly, if you're listening to this, let's get in some therapy. Why are we allowing a man, even a man you believe to be a doctor, to draw the blood of your children outside of a medical facility? for presumably his own benefit. However, Gurley, the smart whippersnapper that she is, she's starting to catch on. Her fairy tale romance with Dyson has some plot holes, to put it very generously. She gets wind about Kimberly, and she actually turns up to Kimberly's salon. Gurley isn't there to attack her. In fact, she's just there to warn her about Dyson and tells Kimberly that Dyson is lying to her. He's married. He has a child. And Gurley begs Kimberly to not tell Dyson that it was her that spilled the beans. And I'll give Kimberly some points here. When she confronted Dyson, she doesn't name Gurley by name. She just says a woman told her about him being married. Dyson puts two and two together, though, and he figures out that Gurley had to be the one who told Kimberly. She had foiled his relationship with Kimberly, and he was going to make her pay. I want to give a quick trigger warning that throughout the rest of this case, I will be discussing domestic abuse. Dyson returns home, pissed drunk, and starts shouting at Gurley. He then escalates by slapping and punching her, even at one point knocking an entire bookshelf over on top of her, and then he gets his hands around her neck, almost choking her to the point of unconsciousness. I feel like with this podcast, it's important to not only share the victim's stories, but help educate on these topics. So that is why I'm going to pause here and talk about men who choke women. Don't come for me for putting gender associations with who is choking who. While women absolutely can be abusers emotionally and physically, it is very rare statistically that women will strangle men. Quite frankly, it takes a lot of strength to strangle someone. And most of the time, it would be very difficult for a woman to overpower a man in this specific way. 
According to Gail Strack, the founder of the Training Institute for Strangulation Prevention and the CEO for Alliance of Hope International, according to their 25 years of research, strangulation is a predictor of homicide. If a domestic abuse victim is strangled, even one time, she is 750% more likely to be killed by her abuser. Let me say that again. 750% more likely to be killed by her abuser. Not just more likely, but more likely to be killed within a year from the first time they are strangled by their partner. One year. Strangulation, even if it is not to the point of serious injury, is basically the hallmark of a high-control, manipulative, and dangerous man. According to former police officer Joe Bianco in an article for the Daily Press, he said, Quote, this is because strangulation indicates a particular dynamic, coercive control. When a victim's throat lays in the hands of their abuser, a message is sent, one that says, I can kill you at any time. This understandably instills fear in the victim and keeps them stuck in a cycle of abuse in which the implied threat of death keeps the victim vulnerable and submissive, end quote. Casey Gwynn says this about the research done through the Alliance of Hope International. The most dangerous domestic violence offenders strangle their victims. The most violent rapists strangle their victims. We used to think all abusers were equal, but they are not. Our research has now made it clear that when a man puts his hands around a woman's neck, he has just raised his hand and said, I am a killer. I tell you all of this because I want to protect you, because I wish someone could have told Girlie Chu this information. If you ever find yourself in an abusive relationship, there is help you can contact www.thehotline.org where you can not only speak to someone confidentially, but they will help you create a safety plan to leave your abuser. Back to Gurley. Her now toddler son, Dimitri, is a witness to all of this abuse. A tenant of the home, not sure when they rented out a room, but regardless, she is also a witness to this abuse and she runs to the neighbor's house and calls 911. The neighbor, a sweet 75-year-old man named Pedro, runs over into the house and bravely steps in between Gurley and Dyson. Gurley escapes to Pedro's home and the police arrive and immediately arrest Dyson. However, as is too common in domestic abuse crimes, before Dyson would ever go to trial, the charges were dropped. I assume it's because Gurley was too scared to work with the police or testify against her husband. Dyson, like so many other abusers, got away with it. So he carries on like he always had, and it's time to find another vulnerable woman to scam. In 1998, a woman named Julie, who was recently divorced from an abusive husband, posts an ad online that she was looking to start over, date someone new. And the leech of a human that is Dyson, who seems to have a predator's knack for picking out the weak and vulnerable, starts a relationship with Julie. But of course, not before he comes up with even more of an elaborate backstory. Dyson tells Julie he works for the NSA. He is still a very educated doctor and surgeon. Tragically, his wife has died, this time during an operation performed by Dyson. Healthcare professionals out there, let me know if this is even allowed to perform surgery on your wife. Seems like a conflict of interest. But anyways, he tells Julie this sob story. And now he is a prestigious doctor working with the NSA, but he's also a single father. He introduces young Dimitri to Julie, and y'all hold on to your hats, because just when you think Dyson's lies can't get more outlandish, 
they do. Dyson tells Julie he made Dimitri. Not in the hanky-panky way that you make a child. No, no, that was enough for Dyson. He tells Julie that the NSA had done a program where they took Dyson's sperm, because he's such a great specimen of a human, and implanted it with the eggs of 12 women, children that they would continue to grow in a lab. Dyson was in charge of this lab child because he was one of the only few in the world with level 22 security clearance. What the science fiction nonsense is all of this? I don't understand how these women could believe this, but maybe Dyson could spout enough professional sounding words, concepts that were a little bit above their heads, that it seemed reputable and they didn't want to question him. I'm not attacking these women that believed him. In fact, Julie turns out to be a bit of a hero in this story, but it just rattles my brain a bit trying to figure out how he could spout all of these lies and actually convince people to believe him. While Dyson was working for the NSA growing these lab children of his, he had also stolen a serum that would reverse the aging process, and he had already used it on many Hollywood actresses. So not only is he preying on Julie's emotions, but also on her insecurities. He tells her this serum costs $32,000 an injection, but he's going to give her a wild discount because he cares about her and he wants her to feel good about herself. And he's going to do them for just $3,200 a month, a 90% discount, and that she would need these injections every month for six years. King of the long con. Lord knows what he's injecting her with at this point, but I'm sure we can assume it was probably those vitamins mixed with his blood. I sound like one of those terrible infomercials right now because, wait, there's more. He knew about a secret alien warfare going on that the government was covering up. And he knew about this because he was half alien himself. <laughs> Can't even say this stuff without laughing. But this is just the tipping point because his lies just pile on as their conversations continue. And soon enough, he tells Julie that the NSA has discovered he has been giving her these injections. And now he has to pay back the government for the serum that he gave her. The entire cost of the serum he stole was $1.8 million, and he needed Julie to help him give that money back to the NSA so they wouldn't come after him and Dimitri. I don't know how he thought this woman who owned a motel was going to have almost $2 million to just hand over to him. So what is Gurley doing back at home when Diazan is off gallivanting around, injecting people with his stolen youth serum? She is putting on her detective hat. There was a room in Diazan and Gurley's house that for the entirety of their marriage had been kept locked. Diazan told her that she could never go into this room. If I were to guess, she probably just assumed it had patient files that needed to be kept private. But as the abuse began in their marriage, she probably was too scared to ever upset him by entering that room or asking anything about it. However, about six months into the affair with yet another woman, Gurley was emboldened. Maybe call it woman's intuition, but when Dyson was gone, she entered his private room. I cannot imagine being Gurley as she started to go through these files because one by one, his lies came to light. He wasn't a doctor. He wasn't a surgeon. And he sure did not have leukemia. He had files about the women in his life and the cons he was running and the money that he had swindled from them. 
For goodness sake, his name was not even his real name. Here in black and white was the evidence that her entire life with Diazin was a complete and total lie. She confronted Diazin, which went as well as you would imagine, and he flew into a blind rage. He turned it on her and said, you broke my trust by entering this room. You are going to pay for breaking my trust. Diazin, get a clue. You have lied to this woman about everything. He's so incredibly hypocritical, but he turned this whole thing around on her. I wish I could pack up Gurley and Dimitri in this moment and get them the heck out of there. But Gurley stayed. Remember, she is in a wildly vulnerable situation. She's cut off from the family she loves that are oceans away. She has a young son who she did not find out was stolen, not adopted at this point. No financial freedom of her own. And so she stays. A few days later, Dyson tries to make good on his threat. He tells Gurley that before she heads into work the next day, she needs to stop by the Hyatt Hotel and pick up a menu from their restaurant for him. An odd request, right? But Gurley agrees because at this point, she's probably doing everything she can to keep the peace. Just a few hours later, she hears a commotion in the garage and goes out to see Dyson loosening the lug nuts on her back tire. Remember his initial lie about his wife dying in a car accident? Seems he was going to make this finally come true. Because to get to the Hyatt Hotel, Gurley would have had to take the interstate. She would be going at a high speed when those lug nuts would presumably loosen enough to cause the tire to come off. In an uncontrollable car going 75 plus miles down the interstate, you don't have to be a member of the NSA with level 22 clearance to know that that would not end well for Gurley. When Gurley discovered Dyson messing with her tire in the garage, she confronted him like, what are you doing? You're trying to kill me now? And Dyson saw red. He threw her to the floor and began attacking her. Somehow Gurley managed to pull out some ninja-style moves and removed herself long enough from his grasp to push the garage door opener button, roll her small frame under the garage door, and ran for her literal life over to the helpful neighbor Pedro's house. Thank goodness he was home. He immediately let her in and called the police. The police show up and they escort her back into the home to get her belongings and Gurley finally made her escape. Sadly, she wasn't allowed to take Dimitri with her. Why they allowed him to stay in the home is beyond me. Our system is so broken. But Gurley got herself set up in an apartment, an apartment address that she kept a secret from everyone got a job as a bank teller, and took out a restraining order against Dyson. I was really puzzled why authorities did not let her take Dimitri. There's a part of me that wonders if Dyson showed the court or police that Dimitri was his biological son and that Gurley really had no legal claim to him, as he was never actually adopted by her. However, allowing him to stay in the care of an abuser? Shameful. He should have been put into protective care at the very least. Julie must have taken off her tinfoil hat long enough because finally she's like, sir, the math is not mathing here, and she wanted to end her relationship with Dyson. However, she had grown really attached to Dimitri and felt concerned for the boy. Dyson, now that Gurley was gone, often would leave Dimitri with Julie to care for him, and Julie was noticing some concerning behavior from the boy. Hats off to Julie because she sort of sacrificed herself pretending she was still in a relationship with Diazin in order to care for Dimitri. This was not a medical marvel genius lab child who was posed to take over the world by the NSA. 
This was a boy who barely spoke, who seemed to be scared of every little thing. And when he did respond to her, he often would talk in an almost robotic, monotone voice. One day when Dimitri was in Julie's care, she decided to give him a bath. And as she helped him undress, she was heartbroken to find that his rectum was red and swollen and that he had a rash in his pelvic area. I know what you listeners are thinking, and I hope that was not the case here. Dyson still had his son, who very much at this point should have been potty trained, in diapers. And I hope these were signs of hygienic neglect and not the more sinister alternative, but I just don't know for sure. She also noticed that he had track marks between his toes. Dyson was drawing blood from his own son. And that was it. Julie threw away her tinfoil hat for good, called social services to report the suspected abuse of Dimitri. Julie had a friend who was a psychologist who she reached out to, and they suggested that in order to get Dimitri to open up to her, to give him a teddy bear and to tell him, this teddy bear needs you to look after him because his mommy and daddy hurt him. He's a little boy just like you. Immediately, her suspicions were confirmed when Dimitri took the teddy bear in his arms and said, no more hurt. We safe. No worry now. He recognized himself in this teddy bear, an abused boy at the hands of his evil parent. My heart is just devastated for Dimitri. He did not deserve to be taken away from his biological mother and to witness the abuse of the only mother he had known at the hands of his father and for that abuse to continue on to him. I truly believe there's a special place in hell for people that hurt children. So let's do a little recap, shall we, before we introduce yet another new character into this twisted tale. Girly Chu had finally left her abusive husband and has basically gone into hiding. Dyson is not only abusive to his wife, but his son as well, and has scammed multiple women at this point out of their money, some of which we don't even know to this day their true identities. And he's still technically married to Girly Chu, but has a relationship with Julie that just ended and still has the time to be in a relationship and get engaged to two other secret fiancés. But of course, that's not enough. The story doesn't just end here because no amount of money or women would ever be enough for Dyson. It's at this point in the summer of 1999, while attending a conspiracy theory conference held by the one and only David Icke himself, who is a wackadoodle character, to put it nicely. Feel free to entertain yourself with a quick YouTube search of that man. But at this convention, Dyson fatefully would meet Linda Henning. Linda was born October 10, 1953 in Hollywood, California, and she had made quite the way for herself. She had become a model as a teen and then went on to start a pretty successful career as a fashion designer and was engaged to be married. But this would all change when she met Diazen at this conspiracy theory conference. Side note, I have got to attend one of these conferences just for the people watching alone. Could you imagine? Anywho, Linda and Dyson bump into each other and Dyson tells Linda that he is a 2,000-year-old alien. Hi, my name is Dyson and I am a 2,000-year-old alien. No Botox needed because I have youth serum. Oh, amazing. Lovely to meet you. I'm Linda and I design clothes. I mean, what in the world is going on here? The two hit it off right away and they bond over UFOs and aliens and Dyson tells Linda that not only is he an alien, but he is the only good alien on the planet and is here to save the world from the bad reptilian aliens 
who are controlling the governments of the most powerful countries. These two Looney Tunes pair up, and within two weeks of Linda and Dyson meeting, Linda has left her fiancé and gotten engaged to Dyson. This man now has a wife and three fiancés. It seems Linda not only bought into Dyson's ridiculous lies, but this was a match made in hell because Dyson seemed to quickly have control over Linda, alienating her, pun intended, from her friends and family, people that would be like, Hey, Linda, um, something doesn't seem quite right here. Let's do a little background search of your alien lover. Linda stopped taking care of herself. I guess keeping up on your laundry, showering, and keeping up appearances isn't as important as helping your alien fiancé to save the world. Meanwhile, Girly Chu is starting the divorce proceedings, and Dyson is panicking. Not because he cares about Girly. We know that during divorce court, there's going to be a look into the finances of the couple. And how was he going to explain how we acquired all of his money? It's not like the court is going to say, okay, Dyson, you can continue running these cons, but you need to give half of your earnings to Gurley. Absolutely not. If this all gets aired out in court, his cover is officially blown and all his dirty dealings are going to come to the light. So he begins stalking Gurley at work, trying to intimidate her. He violates the restraining order she placed against him multiple times. And Gurley suspects that he was the one responsible for smashing her car windshield on two different occasions. And this just pisses me off. Julie called Child Protective Services on Dyson. He was arrested multiple times for domestic abuse. He was arrested for violating the restraining order. But nothing was done. Dimitri and Gurley both deserved better because she was doing everything right. She had left him. She was trying to make a way for herself financially. She even took up karate lessons for self-defense. And yet, the system meant to protect her failed her time and time again. I understand that if she didn't follow through with testifying on the abuse charges, there's nothing they could really do. But what about when a man with a history of abuse is violating a restraining order multiple times? Why is he just getting a slap on the wrist? All of his threats and intimidation were not working. Gurley had not dropped the divorce proceedings like he wanted, so Dyson decided it was time to come up with an even more sinister plan for putting an end to his Gurley Chu problem once and for all. He convinced Linda that she was actually an alien queen, but in order for her to claim her place as queen, she needed to battle in a sword fight and defeat a reptilian bad alien queen. Only then, could she claim her place alongside Dyson and help him save the world from the evil reptilian alien forces? And who was the evil reptilian queen she needed to defeat? Girly Chu. Now, I am not knocking bank tellers here. Your job plays an important role in society, and I always appreciate the suckers you gave me as a kid. But I don't think a bank teller is exactly in a professional position to make a dramatic change or hold a position of power in the government. Why would these advanced aliens set on complete control of the governing powers of Earth put their queen as a bank teller? First female president of the United States? Sure. Head of the UN? Sure. British royalty? Sure. But even then, what do they actually do? I don't think anyone knows. But a bank teller? That's a choice. It seems that while Linda definitely has a few screws loose, she's also missing common sense. But she gets to work. 
training for her inevitable battle, and she starts doing recon on Gurley, opening an account at the bank that she works at, and spending her evenings practicing her sword fighting skills in her garage. Unbeknownst to him, behind the scenes, Diazen has come onto the radar of the FBI over possible fraud charges. Gurley had sadly relinquished her parental rights at this point out of fear for her own safety, and Diazen had begun paperwork to put his son up for adoption. He didn't really serve a purpose to him, so he was just going to give him away, stating to the adoption agency that he only had six months to live because of that darn made-up leukemia. After a little digging, the adoption agency contacted the FBI about the possibility that Dimitri had been kidnapped and they opened an investigation into Diazen. Of course, they contacted Gurley and she spilled it all. She tells him about her lying, abusive husband. On September 8, 1999, she contacted the FBI to inquire about their investigation regarding the possibility that Diazen kidnapped Dimitri from his biological mother. Gurley asked the FBI whether Dyson would be arrested and if there was anything they could do to protect her. But without proof of an immediate threat to her life, they could do nothing. She also confided in her co-workers, telling them about the restraining order and all of the abuse, and that if anything were to happen to her, if she went missing or didn't show up for work, to tell authorities to investigate Dyson, that he would be responsible. Gurley hoped that she would just make it to court, that maybe the FBI would arrest him in the meantime, and that she could divorce Dyson and finally move on with her life. Unfortunately, that day would never come for Gurley Chu. The very next day after she placed the call to the FBI on September 9th, 1999, Gurley ended her shift at the bank and was last seen walking out the door headed for home she would never be seen again. When she didn't show up for work the next morning, her co-workers were on high alert and contacted the authorities. The police head over to Gurley's apartment and immediately were met with an overwhelming scent of bleach. Gurley was not there. In fact, nothing looked suspicious at all in that apartment to the naked eye, but the intense odor of bleach was enough to warrant them spraying down the apartment with luminol. And when they did, Gurley's apartment lit up like a Christmas tree. If you aren't aware, luminol is a chemical that interacts with blood, making it glow under blue light. So even if you try to clean up the blood, you can see it. And light up it did. An investigation immediately began into the disappearance of Gurley Chu. But when the police get to Diazen's home, it's completely cleared out. He's gone. But his neighbors tell police that Dyson had been acting really suspicious. One neighbor even spotted him returning home the night of the night wearing camouflage clothing and his face and neck were covered in black grease paint. The police uncover his relationship with Linda Henning and as soon as they brought Linda in for questioning, she tells them the wild story of Dyson being an alien. He was dying from leukemia, all of this. But she says, Girly Chu, mm-mm, don't know anything about that. Nope, not me. And because they don't have evidence to hold Linda at this point, they have to let her go. But they knew she knew something because she gave Dyson an alibi for where he was the night before. So they did let her go, but kept her under surveillance. The next day, authorities are notified that a road worker had found a tarp alongside the interstate in a remote area, absolutely covered in blood. 
and wrapped in that tarp were pieces of duct tape with long strands of dark hair attached to it and bloodied clothing, clothing that belonged to Girly Chu. It was clear between the amount of blood in the apartment and the blood on the clothing and tarp, this was no longer a missing persons investigation. This was homicide. There was no way that 95-pound Gurley could have survived this much blood loss. Later, Gurley's wallet would be found discarded alongside of the road as well. When lab results came back on the blood and evidence found in Gurley's apartment, it was game over for Dyson and Linda. Remember, Gurley was hiding out in this apartment. She didn't tell anyone where she lived, so there is no reason for any trace of Dyson to be there. However, the blood found in the apartment was a match to Gurley, but there was also small amounts of Linda's blood mixed in as well. They also found hairs that were a match for Dyson. They also recovered multiple cat hairs, over 200 in fact, at Gurley's apartment. But she didn't own a cat. Linda Henning sure did. Through calls made by Dyson to people he was associated with, the police were able to trace him to Charleston, South Carolina, where Dyson was staying with one of his many mystery fiancés. The police arrive at her home, storm in, and arrest Dyson. On him, they find Gurley's ID and a whole host of other suspicious evidence. Just for the record, this secret fiancé he was staying with had absolutely no idea about any of this. She is completely innocent and had no idea Gurley even existed. They also searched Linda's home and found a sword hidden away in her garage and a receipt for this sword showing that it was purchased the day before Gurley went missing. They also found in her car a button from Gurley Chew's clothing. Linda Henning was also arrested. Blood found on the sword had been cleaned so thoroughly that doing a DNA match would be impossible, but I think we all know whose blood was on that sword. A man named Bill Miller was also arrested. I haven't talked about him because this case is already confusing enough. But Bill Miller also met Dyson at that same conspiracy theory conference where he met Linda. He was a fellow conspiracy theorist who seemingly also bought into all of Dyson's nonsense, and it's believed that he became a henchman for Dyson. There was minimal evidence tying him to the scene of the crime, however, so the grand jury did not proceed with murder charges against Bill. Dyson's ego got the best of him in jail because he couldn't help but brag about how he was going to be released soon because he had committed the perfect crime. Um, you just admitted that you committed a crime. A prison mate of Linda would also testify that Linda claimed that her and Dyson had cannibalized Gurley's body in an effort to dispose of her. There is absolutely no proof that this happened, but I couldn't just gloss over a claim like that completely. In January of 2002, Dyson decided that even though he was an immortal 2,000-year-old alien king, he was a little nervous about the possibility of facing the death penalty. So he took a plea bargain that would allow him to escape death row if he pled guilty to the first-degree murder of his wife, Gurley Chu. He was sentenced to life in prison, plus 61 years. Linda Henning pled not guilty, and when her trial began, her defense team was scrambling. There's clearly evidence that she was at the scene of the crime. But could they blame Bill Miller as the murderer and co-conspirator of Dyson? And if so, how? In a truly interesting choice, they called Dyson up to testify. Dyson, the known liar, the known con man, to testify in Linda's defense. And testify he did for five long hours. He gets up on the stand 
and with a confident smile and in a voice reminiscent of Michael Jackson's, he squeaks out a wild tale. He says that Bill was the actual murderer and that Linda is completely innocent and that he had framed her. That the only reason they found Linda's blood at the scene was because he had originally planned to plant blood evidence. Remember, this guy was drawing blood from himself, from anyone he could. But the vial of blood he was planning to use to throw police off the scene broke in his pocket before he got to Gurley's house. And so he had to use a vial of Linda's blood instead. Did Linda Henning have anything to do with the murder of Gurley Hassenkopf? No. Did you uh, put Linda Henning's blood in Gurley Hassenkopf's house? Yes. I already know that her DNA is planted there. I know that because I put it there. Where in the world did you get the experience for all this? <laughs> yes, where in the world indeed. Not only that, but because Dyson loves a little shock and awe, he says some truly deplorable things. He talks on the stand about how he hoped Gurley suffered greatly in death and that he had hunted her down like wild game. Murder is a very sticky business. Yes, sir. It is a very complex issue. You do these things so you get away with it. You plan a murder, you decide on murder, and you execute that strictly by the number. She knew she was going to be hunted like the dog she was. And... Yes, she knew, like a scared rabbit in an open field, she knew. Hopefully, for my end of it, that she suffered the most excruciating pain known to mankind was what I was hoping for. I don't know that. I have no remorse, no pity, no sorrow. It's done, complete, it's finished. To talk in such a manner shows just how little regard Dyson had for anyone but himself. He had no respect for the sanctity of human life, and he didn't even care that Gurley's family would hear him make these statements. He has no remorse whatsoever. Obviously, no one believes a word Dyson says, and that includes the jury, because Linda was sentenced to 73 years in prison. As for Bill Miller, he would only receive charges for tampering with evidence and receive a year of probation. Dyson and Linda will be in jail until they leave in a pine box, but they refuse to disclose where Gurley's body is, and to this day, Gurley's body has never been recovered. Most people believe that after her murder, her body was disposed of in the rural desert areas of New Mexico, and that sadly, her family may never get to put her to rest. As for Dimitri, he went through the foster care system going from home to home until he was formally adopted by a woman in Alaska. I can only hope wherever he is now that he has the love, support, and protection that he was never afforded in his youth. And that is it for today's case. This case was wild. And if you have made it this far without throwing your phone at the wall in frustration on Gurley's behalf or in complete shock at the number of people Dyson was able to con, congratulations. You are a more even-tempered person than I am because having to listen to Dyson's voice alone made me rip my headphones out of my ears multiple times. But I want to hear from you guys. Do you think there's a chance that Linda is innocent? I mean, it's impossible to believe anything Dyson says, but could it have been him and Bill that carried this off and then he just framed Linda to get away with it? I don't know. You guys will have to let me know your thoughts. As always, remember to follow our podcast on Instagram and TikTok at A Case of the Sunday Scaries. And do us a favor, share your favorite episode with a friend. It truly helps our podcast grow. 
I hope you will all join me later this week for a bonus episode and an all-new case coming this Sunday. But as always, until then. <laughs>